Welcome to the Daily Dad Podcast, where we provide one lesson every single day to help you with your most important job, being a parent. I'm Ryan Holiday, and I draw these lessons from ancient philosophy, modern psychology, practical wisdom, and insights from parents just like you all over the world. Thank you for listening, and we hope this helps. Staying focused, staying motivated, these are really hard, even if you're a disciplined person, even if you really like what you're working on. And that's where today's sponsor comes in, Qualia Mind. Qualia Mind from Neurohacker was designed to support the four pillars of cognition, energy, focus, memory, and drive. After only a few days, most users feel more mental energy, deeper mental clarity, attention, focus, motivation, and drive. And Neurohacker has a special deal. You receive 75% off your first bottle, only 39 bucks a bottle, or try it for 100 days. And if you aren't 100% satisfied, there's a 100% money back guarantee. Today's sponsor, Neurohacker, combines 28 of the most research-backed nootropic ingredients on Earth into the ultimate brain fuel formula, quality of mind. And it's been changing people's lives for years. Mental performance is obviously the most important thing to me. It's important for me as a parent too. I wanna be here and be focused on what's in front of me. And also as a parent, I just gotta get things done. See what the best brain fuel formula on earth can do for your mindset. Go to neurohacker.com slash daily dad for 75% off. That's $39 a bottle. And as a listener of Daily Dad, use code Daily Dad at checkout for 15% off your first purchase. That's neurohacker.com slash daily dad to try Qualia Mind with code Daily Dad for life changing mental performance. The amount of times that I ever remember my parents being like, I screwed up or I got mad at you, not because of what you did, but because I was stressed or anxious or worried. And I do think that's a, you're not supposed to present the image to your kids as the parental sage or the Mm -hmm. parental tyrant who cannot be questioned, but a person in the world struggling with these perennial human issues and trying to do the best you can, and hopefully getting better the longer you do it. Yeah, I have um, uh, apologized to my kids on many occasions or shown up in their room a while later and said, hey, I'm sorry, I lost my temper, and here's what's making me anxious, like why I think, um, and I I probably don't do that enough, but I do think that um, uh, that that's... um, you know, it's just like you're just trying to model the kind of person you want to be in the world, which yeah. is like reflective and self-critical. And you should a lot of people, I think, are concerned to appear vulnerable in front of their kids or to appear like they don't know the answers. But that's not going to help them uh, grow into the kind of adults you want them to be. Yeah. The idea that your kid isn't already aware of all of your vulnerabilities and flaws is just a preposterously conceited notion. <laughs> That's right. Like they're, sure. they don't, they're not looking up to you. They think you're a, a weirdo who lives in your house. Like it, oh, my, you know? my, my 12 year old, my 12 year old, for sure. He, he is, he's got a rapier wit and uh, is not, not afraid to use it at my expense now. <laughs> no, I, I was, I was thinking about that where it, it's like, not, you, you describe philosophy or your son, I guess, describes philosophy in the book as the art of thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And a lot of it, it's also thinking about what you think and why you think it. And so to, to, to be like, oh, no, I'm experiencing X because of this condition or factor that's going on in the world. And therefore, I'm going to acknowledge it and deal with it. Just the idea that, like, you're not this rational, perfect being, but you have anxieties and worries and fears and frustrations. Again, like, how are your kids supposed to figure out that, oh, I was misbehaving because I was hungry if dad only loses his temper because someone caused him to lose his temper? No, we're responsible for our own emotions, and we have to explain and articulate and most of all, model that we understand where ours came from and which of those sources are valid and which are invalid. Yeah, and I think there's like a like a fine line to to walk here. So, like I describe in the, uh, I think it's in the chapter on punishment in the book, how um, you know like kids are tired and hungry, especially when they're little. Their kind of self control breaks down and their behavior gets bad. And uh, my wife, who's a therapist, was often like, "Let's just get them to bed." Right. Um, you know, seeing the cause of the behavior. And I would think, no, it still needs to be some accountability here. And I think like ultimately the right answer is kind of like a mixture of both, which is to say, well, if you did the thing, then there is going to be accountability for it. But also I want you to have uh, to be self-reflective enough to realize that you did that because you were tired or you were hungry or you're frustrated or anxious so that you become kind of more self-regulating in the future. Well, I think also uh, developing the ability to look at each case individually and not extrapolate at like, you're like, well, my two-year-old just got upset and he threw this thing and it hit me in the head and that hurt. And I have to tell him that that's not acceptable. It's like, mm-hmm. he's two. So, right. um, you know, chances are all he's actually going to take from this encounter is that like, I was a jerk. Right. And, and and I should be able to say, I can talk about this thing individually and not extrapolate out. Well, if I don't condemn this right now, when he's 14, he's going to get upset with someone and do something at school and then be expelled and then go to jail and then end up under a bridge somewhere. Right. Like the, 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 the ability to not to, to be present with the individual situation and not extrapolate out all this stuff, which as a parent, I think you're especially primed to do is also really helpful. Yeah, for sure. Every moment has the significance, seems to have a significance in the moment when actually like life is full of so many moments, like the individual ones probably wasn't that significant. One thing I think is super interesting about these situations is just like, just how they change over time. So you're like, he's, he's two. There's no moral responsibility at two. I agree with that entirely. Actually, the suggestion I make is like, look, little kids are just, you know, animals and you're kind of training them um, uh, in relation to sort of right and wrong. Um, but you know, but by the time they're five or certainly like seven, nine, they do become capable of appreciating reasons not to act in certain ways, even when they have emotions that lead them to want to act those ways. And so I think there's a kind of like constant tension between recognizing who they are, but having to treat them like they're at the next stage so that they develop the capacities you want them to have at that stage. You're sort of onboarding them to the next, to the soon to be entered phase of moral culpability. Exactly. So it's not that I like you you shouldn't be genuinely angry at your two year old who probably isn't capable of doing better. But you need to express disappointment and say, hey, you're like you're a really kind person. And that was not a kind way to act so that they become attuned to kindness and the way their behavior affects others. Like if you you don't sort of treat them like they're they're at the next level, they're not going to get to that level. 
I think one thing that kids has helped me with is it's like, okay, since I know this person and I care about this person and it's not possible for me to separate from this person, right? Like we, we have a lifetime contract for better, for worse, uh, is it's like you start, you start to understand you're like, okay, it's cause we skipped nap. That's why you're being a jerk or we blew like I, for something I needed to do disrupted the routine for the day. And now it's stressful and weird to you. And that's why you're behaving. Like you, you get to these root causes. And then I try to go as I'm out in the world, understanding that almost everyone is operating as a result of some root cause. I think it was Socrates who said, no one does wrong on purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea that it's like, oh yeah, this person's routine might've been disrupted. They might be tired or hangry or whatever. And that I don't have to, it's not that I don't have, it's not even my spot to hold them morally accountable, but like I can look for that reason to be patient or understanding in the Mm -hmm. same way that I would for my kids. Uh, And this, this isn't just a gift to them, but it also makes me less angry as a person because I don't take this stuff as personally. Yeah. So there's like one of the things the punishment chapter talks about is this tension between um, what philosophers call reactive attitudes. So your anger, your resentment, your indignation at bad behavior, and then a kind of like more objective frame in which we view people where we see them as objects to the world, subjects to the laws of cause and effect. And we, we say things like, oh, look, you know, um, that person was really tired or stressed out because of things going on at work. And it's hard to control your behavior when you're, when you're feeling that way. And I think like as people, we're constantly caught between these two ways of looking at each other. And, uh, and actually one of them was like, I was a law clerk for Justice Ginsburg. One of the best lessons, life lessons that I learned from her is she had this line when people would ask her like why her marriage was so successful. She'd pass on advice her mother-in-law gave her. She'd say in every marriage, it helps to be a little, in every marriage, it helps to be a little deaf. Yes. And, and she meant like, you know, like that person may have said something nasty or mean, but you don't have to hear everything. Um, you don't have to respond to it as a slight. You can just dismiss it and overlook it. And, uh, and I think there's um, a ton of wisdom in, uh, in realizing that I have a choice here. I can respond to this in the kind of moral accountability way. I can go the direction of anger and resentment, and there are definitely occasions for that. Or I can shift over to the more objective perspective and I can say, ah, you know, I know you're having a rough time at work. I'm just going to ignore, ignore that you said that mean thing to me. Yeah. And I, I, I've heard that quote before. I've always liked it. I've got to imagine it explains her ability to not just work with, but be like lifelong friends with someone she's as different as, as, as just, uh, uh, justice Scalia, right. They're diametrically opposed politically, their size, different experience, every way they're different. And yet they have this sort of, uh, intimate friendship because she probably focuses on where they have common ground and common humanity and a common love of things and is deaf to not just the things they disagree with, but what I'm sure were also a number of provocations and offenses and frustrations. You have to be a little deaf to those things while still holding your ground and not compromising on the principles that matter. For sure. That's how she thought, saw things. And, uh, you know, sometimes the draft would come in from Justice Scalia to her chambers and it would, you know, contain like what you call a provocation and and her clerks would want to want to respond. And she was always restrained. She'd say, you know, like, oh, that's just Nino being Nino. And it was partly because she had a clear sense of 
who she was and how she wanted to be in the world, right? She wanted to be um, like straight ahead um, with her job. Here are my best legal arguments um, delivered in a tone that's consistently respectful. She also had a kind of strategic view of I'm part of this institution for a long time. It was like, you know, a lifelong contract, as you said uh, a moment ago. And my effectiveness within it probably depends on having good relationships with my colleagues. I'm not going to like step back from saying they're wrong when I think they're wrong. And sometimes you said that like very um, forcefully, but uh, but she wasn't going to take the provocation as a reason to respond uh, to respond indignantly. So this is a little far afield from what the book is, but it was something when I was thinking about reading it. So you're, tra- you're sort of talking about these philosophical concepts in the book and, and how kids think about them. Um, I, uh, like a lot of people, I read uh, Ayn Rand when I was, you know, uh, just, uh, I think, just in college. It sort of hits, there's this, it's a strong set of sort of moral and philosophical and legal arguments about the world um, mm-hmm. that, that I don't want to say arrests certain people's development, but it struck me as, it's, it's always struck me as a very teenagey, early twenties sort of philosophical viewpoint. Do you know what I mean? Um, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. No, I think it's a Paul Krugman who has this line about, um, it's like, uh, you know, um, uh, Atlas shrugged and Lord of the Rings, you know, like wh- wh- I can't remember exactly how you put it, but like, you know, uh, uh, one of them is a book that people read as teenagers and they get totally sucked into the world and it upends their, like upends their view of life. And the other involves orcs. <laughs> um, but, but I, I think that's, uh, I think that's fine. Cause it's, um, you know, there's, there's a line in nasty brutish in short where I'm thinking through the possibility that other people are zombies that maybe I'm the only person in the world who's conscious. And I say like, um, like that, that would be really weird. Like, you know, I'm just some schmuck who was born in suburban Atlanta in 1976. The idea that the world was created for me and just me yeah. is not something I've thought since I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, but 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 Ayn Rand captures people at a certain age um, uh, when they're disposed to to be self-interested and she gives them a justification for it. And some people never, never leave it behind. Yeah, maybe it was Christopher Hitchens. Someone was talking about uh, Ayn Rand and the virtue of selfishness, and he said something like, "That's not something people need a lot of help with, is it?" <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a great line. Yeah, you know, it's um, I, I, you know, I don't understand. I don't quite understand why people get stuck there because it's, um, you know, uh, it the. The sort of um, it, it, it feels like there's something um, you know, like if you think you matter, right? Other people have the same features that you do. You you, you think like well, eventually you should realize well, other people would matter for just the same reason that I would, and, and and equally so. And I'm not quite sure why people never get to that realization, but but a significant fraction don't. Well, we were talking about earlier about saying things that are not in your financial interest, and I can already hear people being very pissed off that we're, we're saying this about Ayn Rand uh, amongst uh, the, my listeners. But I think I think what it is is it's very rarely does philosophy, with with a few exceptions, maybe Nietzsche does this does this pretty well. I think great philosophy challenges the ego, right? Mm-hmm. And it forces you to question things. It forces you to see your insignificance. It forces you to see your duties, obligations, the nuances of things. 
what Ayn Rand sort of does, I would say quite skillfully, both from a philosophical standpoint, but also from a like an artistic entertainment sort of captivated is the exact opposite, right? It's one of the few philosophies that says like, you are special. You have these things. Other people are trying to drag you down and take from you. And that, uh, I mean, to me, the, 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 the inherent pettiness of Atlas Shrugged is, is like, you know, Plato has his cave, right? You go into the cave, you get truth. You are obligated to come back and inform the other people of the shadows. Ayn Rand says, if you get out of the cave, uh, if, if people aren't respecting you, loving you, whatever, you should be able to flee to Galt's, Galt's Gulch and, and take your ball and go home, right? So right. I think at 17, 18, 25, or wherever you are emotionally, that can be a very potent message to a person. Yeah, you know, as you're talking, I wonder if there's something about American culture that also um, uh, is encouraging of this attitude. So, um, you know, we constantly contribute to our uh, communicate to our children just how special they are. Yeah. And actually, I think one way in which I was really lucky is as uh, my mother was very concerned that we know that we weren't special. So <laughs> if, if we came home from school and we were bored because they were talking about something she already knew, she was like, well, she was a teacher once. She's like, I bet other kids didn't know that yet. Or, you know, they needed some more time to spend on that. And that school was not made for you it's fine for you to sit there, sit there and be bored. Yeah. And, and, and that's something we try to carry forward in our parenting. There are of course ways in which my kids are special. They're special to me, but I want them to know that in some deep sense, they're not special. The world was not made for you. Not every, not everything is going to be exciting or to your liking. And that's fine. Cause there's lots of people in the world. Or it's that it's the, actually the opposite of all those things, right? Like I, I remember I had a high school English teacher and uh, I was, you know, like, let's say relatively advanced in the class. And I remember like we would do these little group things and I would say my thing in the group thing. And then someone would like steal, steal my idea. Like they would raise their hand and say the thing and get credit for what I had done. And I remember I went to her and again, in a very sort of, uh, Atlas shrugged way. And I was like, these kids are stealing my ideas. You know, they're stealing my ideas and getting credit for them. And I remember she just looked at me and she said, yeah, that's your job. Uh, hmm. and which is the, the exact opposite. It's, it's not that you're worthless or you don't have anything to offer. It's, I think the distinction Ayn Rand is like, uh, you're special, you're important, uh, get away from the blood suckers who want to take from you. Right. And I think the, the, the other philosophical tradition, which I like better is like, yes, you, you've been given these gifts. You have this special ability, whatever it is. And that obligates you right to whom much is given, much is expected. Right. And, yeah. and so I think, when you can read, it's also weird just to think like this book was, it's not like Atlas Shrugged was written like 500 years ago. It's like, this is, no, this is some lady in the fifties, right? Like, right. Um, but, but that, that when someone can, and I guess this is what demagogues do well, when someone can tell you the thing that you most don't want to have to do, you don't have to do, and it's not your fault. And it's actually these other people's fault. That's one of the most seductive arguments there is, especially yeah, for when sure. you're immature. Uh, yeah, for sure. And actually that, that line, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected was constantly repeated in my house, uh, in my house growing up too. You know, I hope that, um, you, you know, there may be something you can do before kids get to the teenage years that would, that would inoculate against them. You know, it's still an experiment in my house. Sure. We'll see if it, see if it works, but, um, the kind of constant questioning of philosophy, um, and, you know, like one thing, you know, uh, you know, 
I say around here is like you're, you're like you're not entitled to your opinion. Your opinion is something that you've got to defend with evidence and arguments. And I, you know, I put my kids to that task over and over again. And I hope that um, that you know cultivating those habits of mind before they get to uh, Ayn Rand or Fox News or whatever it is uh, will be a little bit protective. Yeah, you, you. That was something I liked in the book, which is kids are always hitting you with why. You know, they're always quite mm-hmm. forcing you, but that you can also force, you can also flip that on your children. So when they give you these sort of statements about the world, like I should be able to watch TV whenever I want, instead of you just telling them, this is what you're saying, instead of you telling them, no, that's not true. Here's why. Force them to be like, why is that the case? And then force yeah, them to so, argue their position. You know, I tell the story of doing this one night uh, at a taqueria and my youngest son, Hank, says that he has a right to drink whatever he wants. He wants a soda. And uh, I was like, well, why? He's like, I just do. And I'm like, no, buddy, that doesn't work. If you say you have a right, you better have reasons, you know, uh, that you have that right. And so I made him make arguments. And, you know, unsurprisingly, they weren't super persuasive arguments. But but I do think this is like one of my favorite parenting tricks is just put them on the other end of the why that you're getting constantly make them make the argument. Yes. And and that way it's not coming from force from you or fiat. They're having to not only are they getting the brain power of exploring the own ideas, but they're having they're ultimately struggling with the fact that their argument's not super per- persuasive either, as opposed exactly. to you just saying, because I said so. Exactly. Yeah, right. And so this is just back to the idea that philosophy is the art of thinking. And so it's 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 less important to me that my kids think the way I do than that they think well and think clearly or in, and are in a habit of questioning their own ideas. And, you know, asking them questions and then questioning their answers is the best way I know how to make that happen. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, any, any other advice you've got for parents, uh, as, as your kids get, have gotten older or, um, uh, or, or about the study of philosophy? So, you know, part of what I want, um, you know, we've been having this conversation, uh, you know, sort of like thinking about bringing up kids and raising kids that are going to be, um, the kind of adults we would like them to be. I think part of what I want to communicate through the book is like your, your kids are not just projects, right? It's not just a question of like, how do I raise this child and get them to be the adult that I'd like them to be, that they're also these complete people um, who are um, worth appreciating for what they are, even though they're going to be something different. And I think people are just really missing this curiosity and inquisitiveness and willing to think big thoughts and ask big questions that kids naturally have. And it's um, it's something you can sustain, and I want to encourage people to sustain it. But it's inevitably gonna um, gonna fall away a little bit, um, you know, like when they start to hit middle school age and they're worried about what others think of them and they've got different interests in the world. They're not going to be um, as deeply engaged philosophically. So my so like part of what I want to say to parents is just you know these your kids are fun and they're creative and enjoy them the way they are because because you are going to lose a little bit of that. Yeah, it's um I think it's Alison Gopnik. She makes this distinction between being a carpenter or a gardener, right? Mm-hmm. Like are you cultivating and helping your kids grow or are you building them? And one is a much more egocentric, uh probably a delusional sense of control uh to it and the other I think is more humble and more the role of a facilitator, which is what I feel like you're closer towards talking about. She's also got this metaphor that I just love where she says, um, 
you know, that kids' minds, they're not just like primitive versions of adults' minds, that they're equally powered, but powerful, but different. And she says, like, like, um, like uh, growing older is, is like a metamorphosis. Um, you know, you're going from caterpillar to butterfly, but she actually wants to invert it. She says, like, the little kids are the butterflies, and then they become the caterpillars inching along the adult path. And I think that there's something deeply true about that, that kids are just much more vibrant, engaged, alive thinkers often than adults are. And so I want people to appreciate that and then for themselves try and recapture some of the kid that they once were that's willing to ask these big, deep questions. And, and one way to do that is to ask them with kids. Last, last question, uh, and this is not that much to do with philosophy, but I guess it goes to the idea of education and what is knowledge. So you went to like the best schools in the world. You have a law, a law degree from Yale. You, went, you have a PhD from Oxford. How do you think about it with your kids uh, as far as that, like, education goes, but specifically higher education? Um, how has your experience shaped what you are either building or gardening your kids towards? Sure. Well, so um, uh, really interesting. So I do have those two degrees, but you left out actually my undergraduate degree, which is from the University of Georgia. Sure. And, the full uh, and I, that's right. So and I sometimes say I've got degrees from the fanciest uh, from the fanciest schools, but I actually got my education at the University of Georgia. <laughs> um, and uh, and I think actually that's part of what I want people to know about higher education is I, I, I do think like there's something to be said um, for a place like Yale Law School, but it's actually mostly social networking connections um, that, the, that, the, that are like the main advantage of those institutions. You can get an extraordinary education at so many places, uh, so many institutions in our country, especially at so many state institutions. Um, if you're there and you're engaged and you're hungry for it. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think of myself as trying to like like, you know, uh, uh, push my child along a path where they create the resume that gets them into the fanciest place, in part because I know from experience that that may not be where the best education is, that, sure. uh, that, it, may, that, it, may be, that it may be somewhere else. But, but, but I'll say, and maybe this is more what you're getting at, um, I, um, I hope that my kids, like if, I, if there's something I can cultivate from them and their attitude towards education, it's just not to be relentlessly instrumental about it. Um, not to think I should major in business or engineering because that yields the highest salary. Um, but to think that, um, like the point of an education is like to build you as a person. Um, and that requires, um, some reflection on the kinds of conversations that we've been talking about, whether you do it in philosophy classes or in English classes or in psychology classes, just like the things that are happening in the humanities are every bit as important to, to your future as the stuff that you might learn in an engineering class or an accounting class. And I think that that age old distinction between school and education, which is that they are related, but not quite the same thing. For sure. Yeah. I mean, the, um, uh, if I had like a particular aspiration for my kids that I'm uncompromising about, uh, it's that they be re that they be readers. Yes. Um, and uh, and and not not all of that, but part of that is if if you read, then you're not going to stop learning just because you stop going to school. Yes. Yeah. You want an educated uh, child, not a well-schooled child. For sure. Yeah. Well, this was lovely. I, I really enjoyed the book and uh, I, I, loved, uh, I loved our conversation. This was really fun. Thanks for taking the time. 
Hey, you're listening to the Daily Dad Podcast, one meditation a day inspired to help you do your most important job, which is be a great father. These are meditations inspired by ancient wisdom, psychological research, and just great strategies from normal dads just like you. Thanks for listening.